Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2. I know that we are uh, right in the thick of a juicy passage in the book of Colossians, but we're going to take a break from Colossians today uh, because there's some things going on in our world that I, I feel we need to address biblically this morning. Uh, to equip you guys, to give you answers from the Word of God, so I feel it's important. We'll be back in the book of Colossians next week, don't worry. So we're going to be looking at some stuff today. We'll be starting in Romans chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, thank you this morning for the gathering of your church. And as has already been pronounced, this is your church, Jesus. You are the head of this church. It is your body. We are your bride. You have authority over this church and you have given us the Holy Spirit to be the teacher of all things. And so we're asking that you would teach your church this morning, Jesus, by your spirit and that concerning things going on in our world, that you would make us biblically aware and biblically adept and able to offer biblical answers to the things that are going on. Lord, keep us from a worldly mindset and bring us this morning into a biblical worldview. Speak to us now as we look into your word and talk about what's going on in our world. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, listen, friends, I don't have TV at my house. I, I have a TV and it's hooked up to VCR. My kids watch videos and once in a while I'll watch a video. But I don't have television in the sense of channels. Um, and, and so I... Sometimes I'm out of touch with things that are cool and new TV shows and stuff like that. I keep up with the news via the Internet and the newspaper, so on and so forth. Uh, but seldom see a TV screen on with just channels happening. This week I was having special time with my son. And uh, once in a while we'll get together and we'll just take a whole afternoon and it's special time. He loves it. Special time with daddy, he calls it. And we do whatever he wants to do. And he likes to play uh, video games. You know, he's almost five. He calls them video games. Let's go play video games. And uh, when I was a kid, I, I never played video games. I've never been into video games. Don't like them. I've never liked them. Somebody, and they're probably here, who babysat them one time, introduced them to video games. I'm bummed about it. And they did it at Rusty's Pizza here in Carpinteria. And so whenever we have special time, I like to go to the beach or the park or ride around on our bikes or something. And he goes, video games. And they must have taken him to ice cream because inextricably linked in his mind are video games and ice cream. The two are inseparable. He's got to have them together. And so I went to Foster Freeze the other day, got him some ice cream, uh, vanilla chocolate swirl, kids cone. We were eating it, and then we went across the street to Rusty so he could play his video games. We were borrowing Pastor G's car, happened to open up the center council, and there was a bunch of quarters in there. Stole all his quarters, gave them to my son, and he's in there playing video games. And while he's playing, I'm just kind of kicking back, and they've got this huge TV screen in there. And uh, something caught my ear, and so I looked over, and there was a uh, very well-known news anchor on one of the major networks. And he was interviewing certain well-known evangelical leaders. He was interviewing certain pastors and leaders uh, from the world of evangelical Christianity in America. And he was asking them about the recent hurricanes and the subsequent floods. And he was asking these Christian leaders, are these signs of the last days? Do these storms, do these floods mean that it is the end of the world and is what happened in New Orleans and the surrounding areas? 
Is that the wrath of God? Very poignant question. Great question. It's a question that's being asked around many water coolers and workplaces around America right now. And so he's asking these various evangelical leaders, and I was so disappointed with the answers that they gave. I was so disappointed with their lack of clarity and the lack of biblical explanation that they gave. And so my heart was stirred this week, and I figured that we need to talk about some of the recent disasters, hurricanes Katrina and Rita and the subsequent floods, and answer the question, are they the wrath or judgment of God? Are the things that have happened in our nation recently the wrath of God upon our nation? Now, you'll know and remember that we sent a team of people over to the Astrodome to minister to those who had been displaced. And one of the things that our team heard repeatedly from those who had experienced the hurricane and who had lost everything was people saying this was the wrath of God. Those who went through it, they believe that this was the wrath of God. My dad talked to one young man. He's about 17 years old and he was from the hood in New Orleans. And he said, there's no doubt in my mind that what happened in New Orleans is the wrath of God judgment upon us because of how wicked we were. And that was that young man's opinion. And he was very adamant about it. And then there were others who were saying, uh, listen, I'm never going back to New Orleans. I never could have gotten out of there. But now that I have nothing left, I'm going to be relocated and I will never go back. Praise God. So for them, it was the mercy of God and the blessing of God getting them out of a bad situation. So according to the opinion of those who were there, was it the wrath of God or was it the mercy of God? For some, they took it as both. And, uh, For some of those that experienced, for them, it was the wrath of God. In this sense, they were expecting God's wrath in their lives. It says in Proverbs chapter 11, uh, verse 23, The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. The desire of the righteous is only good, but the expectation of the wicked is wrath. Those who are wicked, unforgiven for their sins, not born again in rebellion to God, they expect in some sense the wrath of God in their lives. And so in that sense, for some people that were there, for them it was the wrath of God, not speaking of relativity, but speaking along the lines of the fact that God used it in their lives as a wake-up call. And they, knowing they were in rebellion to God, when they lost everything, looked to the provider of all things and said, oh my gosh, I've been in rebellion. My eyes have been opened. My heart has been awakened. And so for them, because God used it in that way, it was the wrath of God. But for others, as I said, it was the mercy of God. And so the effect that it had on individuals' lives... And the subsequent perception of the cause of the events put aside now, the question that continues to be explored in America today in public forum is this. Did God purposely design the hurricanes to be instruments of his judgment and wrath upon New Orleans and the surrounding areas? Did God purposely design them to be instruments of his wrath? I believe that the answer is crystal clear in the word of God. Look with me in Romans chapter 2. Romans chapter 2, reading verse 2. 
It says, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. What things? The things mentioned in previous verses. Look up in chapter 1, starting in verse 29. Speaking of such things, it says that they are, uh, Romans 1, 29, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, Murder, strife, deceit, malice, they are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So it says concerning the people that are practicing that sort of lifestyle in Romans 2, 2, that we know the judgment of God rightly falls upon them. Go on in verse three. And do you suppose this, O man, that when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Those who are doing such things, do they think that they will escape the judgment of God? It's a rhetorical question. The answer is obviously no, they will not escape the judgment of God. Verse 4. Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Very, very important verse. Read it again. Do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Right now, we are living in what is called biblically the age of grace. We are living in a time that is after the cross and before the rapture and the second coming of Jesus Christ. And God's mode of operation and purpose is outlined in this verse. That he is drawing men and women to repentance by his kindness. Not by his wrath. Not by wrathful acts in our world. The Bible says clearly he is drawing men and women to himself right now through his kindness. His tolerance, his forbearance is another translation, his patience. And the purpose of God's kindness is to draw people to repentance. And so it says in 2 Peter 3, 9, that the Lord is not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. The Lord does not want people to die in their sins. He wants them to repent and be given eternal life. It says in Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked would turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. That passage right there, in conjunction with the two that we previously read, read, reveals God's heart for all the ages. He wants people to turn and to be saved. And his purpose and methodology, mode of operation in this age, is to lead people, wicked people, people who have not been born again, to repentance that they might receive salvation. And he does so by his kindness. The kindness of the Lord. 
The Lord draws people by doing kind things to them, for them, around them. His kindness being this, that He does not deal out immediate retribution for wicked acts. In this age of grace, God does not deal out immediate retribution for wicked acts. Could you imagine if He did? Could you imagine what our world would be like if every time there was wickedness, God just opened up the heavens and bam! And there's wickedness over here and bam! You would be in trouble, wouldn't you? I know I would be in trouble if God dealt out immediate retribution for wicked acts in our world. But that is not His mode of operation right now. In his patience and forbearance, he is passing over those acts of rebellion to extend kindness to humanity in hopes that they will recognize him as a loving father and repent and receive forgiveness through his son that died upon the cross. So he does not deal out immediate retribution right now, but he does keep a record of wicked acts. Isaiah chapter 65 Verse 6 says that he keeps a record of wicked deeds. And then we're told in Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, that at the great white throne judgment, this is the final judgment, at the great white throne judgment, the books, plural, will be opened. In those books will be the wicked deeds of men and women. So he doesn't deal out immediate retribution right now, but he is keeping record and there is coming a day called the judgment when the records will be opened. And so it says in verse 5 of Romans then, of Romans 2, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous God of judgment or of the righteous judgment of God who will render to every man according to his deeds. Look what that verse says. That verse says that when people reject the kindness of the Lord, by which he is trying to draw them to repentance and out of wickedness, that they are storing up wrath for themselves. Humanity often thinks that they're getting away with it. Well, where is your God? He's not doing anything to me. If there is a God, strike me down right now. I defy you right now, God. God just goes, oh boy. And has kindness on them. But he keeps a record. And, and through their stubbornness of heart and ignoring the kindness of God, they store up wrath for themselves. This is terrifying. Storing up wrath for themselves. The non-believer, us, before our wrath was placed upon Jesus Christ, before we were forgiven. Every time, wrath, sin again, more wrath, sin again, more wrath stored up, sin again, more wrath stored up. Unbelievable passage. And when does it say they are storing up wrath for themselves? In the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. When is that? The day of wrath starts at the tribulation period. Expressly in the scriptures, the tribulation is the wrath of God on an unrepentant world. It says so over and over and over again in the book of Revelation. And it ends at the great white throne judgment. After the millennial kingdom, Revelation chapter 20, verse 12, when the books are open and the final judgment takes place. So they're storing up wrath for themselves, not now to be met out, to be dealt out, but during the tribulation period, which finally, finally God pours out his wrath 
on an unrepentant world. And then at the great white throne judgment, when judgment is placed and there's eternal, eternal separation from God. Now, look, the Bible is very clear in the age of grace. God is seeking to draw people by his loving kindness. So in his forbearance, he overlooks the wickedness and yet he stores it up. He takes record of it and he stores up wrath for a certain day, which the word of God says clearly is the tribulation period outlined in Revelation and throughout the Old Testament and mentioned all throughout the New Testament in Revelations chapter six through 19. God not wanting people to experience his wrath and judgment has announced beforehand that it is coming and generally when it will come. Isn't that wonderful? The Lord, he doesn't want people to experience his wrath. And so he alliterates it clearly in scripture, gives us a basic timeline through scripture. Jesus did so in Matthew 24 of when these things will come. God does not want people to experience wrath. But because he's a righteous judge, somebody's got to take the wrath. And so Jesus took it for us upon the cross. And the moment we recognize what Jesus did upon the cross and repent of our sins and ask to be forgiven according to that work, then we are saved and our wrath is dealt with. Our wrath is dealt with by Jesus. There's no judgment for us for sin. But if we don't do that, he's announced that wrath and judgment are coming. But I want you to notice as you think about Katrina and Rita, that the Bible says that the day of wrath is still yet future. It's a tribulation period. The day of God's wrath has not yet come. And that when it comes, there will be no question. There will be no guy on CNN having to ask religious leaders, is this the wrath of God? There will be no question about it. It says in the book of Revelation that when the wrath begins, men are asking mountains to fall on them, saying, hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. They know exactly what it is. It's yet future. There will be no confusion about the wrath of God. And the wrath of God will be infinitely more horrific than the hurricanes. Infinitely more horrific than the hurricanes. And the Bible's clear, as I mentioned before, it will be on the unrepentant. Those who have not come to Jesus in humility and repented and asked for forgiveness. Those who have repented will experience before the tribulation period, the rapture of the church. Very basic doctrinal principle that as a Christian, our wrath has been put upon Jesus Christ. And it says then for Christians in the book of First Thessalonians that we are not destined for wrath, but for salvation. Because Jesus already took our wrath. If we as Christians went through the tribulation period, which is expressly in the word of God, the wrath of God, then there would be double wrath for our sins. Jesus already took the wrath, but then God, if he let us go through the tribulation period, would be pouring out the wrath upon us. Double wrath. God does not double wrath us. If Jesus took our wrath, then we are not appointed for wrath, but for salvation. And so there is a rapture of the church when the Lord calls forth his church and we go to meet him in the clouds. And so we're with him in heaven before the tribulation period, because it doesn't make any sense for the Christian whose wrath has been put upon Jesus to experience the wrath of God in the tribulation. It makes no sense whatsoever. It says over and over and over and over again in the book of Revelation that as men and women experience the wrath of God, they still did not repent. They still would not repent. 
and they still would not repent. This is it over and over. It illustrates very clearly that the wrath of God in the tribulation period is poured out on the unrepentant because the repentant, those who have repented and been forgiven according to what Jesus did upon the cross, are taken out before that time. Now, there's a precedent throughout the Bible that God does not pour out his wrath and judgment on the righteous and the wicked alike. Think about this now with Katrina and Rita and other things going on in our world. There is a precedent in the Bible that God does not pour out his wrath on the righteous and the wicked alike. Think about the flood. Just like God is warning our world now of the coming tribulation, God warned Noah and through Noah, the world around him of the flood that was coming, the judgment and the wrath of God that was coming. He gave them 120 years to repent. And those who repented, unfortunately, it was only Noah and his sons and their wives and his wife. Those who repented were delivered from the wrath in the ark. You see, it was not God's plan, even though his wrath was going to come upon the world, to wipe out the righteous in the same swipe as he did the wicked. We see it also in the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. In the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. There was warning beforehand from God. There's always warning beforehand from God before he pours out his wrath. There was warning beforehand. And so in Genesis chapter 18, verse 25, Abraham says to God, Far be it from thee to do such a thing, to slay the righteous with the wicked, so that the righteous and the wicked are treated alike. Far be it from thee, shall not the judge of all the earth deal justly? And so the Lord responds, and in uh, verse 32, he says, I will not destroy Sodom if there are even ten righteous in it. In other words, God is saying it is not consistent with my character to, in my wrath, destroy the repentant along with the non-repentant. He says, I won't do that if there's even ten repentant in Sodom. I won't destroy it. I'll spare it for them on their behalf because they are there. Surely in New Orleans and the surrounding area, there were at least 10 repentant people. And so regarding Sodom in Genesis 19, the angels came prior to the destruction and they told Lot and his family, hurry, escape. We cannot do anything until you're gone. The angels came to destroy the city and they told the ones in the city who were repentant, you must leave this place. We cannot allow the wrath of God to come forward until you are gone. And so they left and then the wrath came. Why did God send those messengers, those angels to remove them? Because it is against God's character to pour his wrath out on the righteous and the wicked alike. Don't get me wrong. It's not that New Orleans didn't deserve the wrath of God. I've been there before. It's utterly wicked. But if New Orleans deserved the wrath of God, what about Los Angeles? If New Orleans deserved the wrath of God, surely Los Angeles does. And if New Orleans deserved the wrath of God, certainly San Francisco does. And if New Orleans deserved the wrath of God, with no doubt New York City does. And what about France, that God-rejecting country? What about in our own backyard, Isla Vista? People talk about Mardi Gras in New Orleans, but what about Halloween at Isla Vista? I've never seen a more wicked thing in all my days. What about Carpinteria? What are we, some righteous city? If New Orleans deserved the wrath of God, so do we. So does our community. So does our town. What about other places in the world? You see, sin is sin before God. Sin is sin before God. 
And if we were to say here as Christians and say they deserve it and they got it, then you better watch out, buddy. Because in the same way that you measure, it will be measured unto you, the Lord said. And yet the inclination of sinners, you and I, is that when disaster strikes, uh, to assume that the people bearing the brunt must have been worse sinners. That's always the inclination. And thereby that they deserve what happened. It was the same thing in the first century in the time of Jesus. Turn to Luke chapter 13, please. Luke chapter 13. In Luke chapter 13, we pick it up from chapter 12, where Jesus has been talking about eternity and heaven, so on and so forth, and the things of the kingdom of God. And then it says in Luke 13, chapter, uh, verse 1, excuse me. Now, on the same occasion, there were some present who reported to him about the Galileans, whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. Uh, the Galileans, understand that most of Jesus' disciples were Galileans. And um, they were reporting to the Lord, hey, what about the disaster? What about the travesty? What about the horror that took place when there were Galileans worshiping the Lord and Pilate came and slaughtered them? What about that, Jesus? And Jesus says in verse 2, he answered and said to them, Do you suppose that these Galileans were greater sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered this fate? I tell you, no. So is the inclination. When something horrible happens on this sort of scale, to think, well, they must have deserved it in some way. They must have done something to deserve the wrath of God. They must be worse than me, is what you're saying. And Jesus says here expressly, it's in red ink in your Bible if you have a good one, no. No. I tell you, they were not worse sinners. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. In other words, the, the response for you, he says to these who are asking, is it ought to be repentance. Ought to be the realization of how fragile life is. You're but a vapor here today, gone tomorrow. And so you ought to get an eternal perspective and say, I need eternal life. Therefore, I've got to repent. Jesus goes on and says in verse 4, Or you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who lived in Jerusalem. When we go to Israel, we'll go to the area of Siloam where this tower was and this tower toppled at one time, killed 18 people in Jerusalem. And Jesus says, do you think that they deserve that? Do you think that they were worse culprits or sinners than you? Verse five, I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you all likewise perish. In other words, he's speaking about eternal life here. Jesus responds and says, I want you to understand and know something about tragedy. Those people that experience it are not worse sinners than you. You are all in the same boat. You are all deserving the wrath of God. And so the response ought to be, wow, I need to be right with God. The response in the face of tragedy in this world is when things go wrong in this world, make sure that you are right with the God of this world. When things go wrong in this world, make sure that you are right with the God of this world. The astounding thing is not so much that people perish in tragedies, but that more people don't. Because we're living in a world that is out of control, rejecting God, spiraling toward the wrath of God. And this life is but a vapor, James 4.14. 
And it is only by the grace of God that any one of us lives today. It says in the book of Colossians, we'll look at it next week, that all things are held together by Christ Jesus. It is only the grace of God that this building at this moment doesn't fall on each one of us. And then what would they say about this church? Where they were sinners because their building collapsed during a worship service? And the Lord would say, I tell you no. But what you ought to do is check your heart and make sure that when bad things happen in this world, you're right with the God of this world. If the Lord wanted to wipe out evil, he could do so very easily. He could do so in an instant. But who would be left? Who would be left if the Lord went to wipe out evil? It says in Romans chapter 3, It is written, verse 10, there's none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There's none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of, the, of asps is under their lips. The Lord says there is not one person who is righteous in the sight of God apart from the forgiveness of Jesus Christ. And so if the Lord wanted to pour out his wrath now, everyone would be gone. But it is not his mode of operation to do so at this time. And so the Bible is very clear on this issue, I believe. Absolutely crystal clear. Was what happened in the South the wrath of God? No. It was not. For the following reasons. Number one, we all deserve God's wrath and judgment until we repent. Number two, Jesus took all the wrath and judgment of God upon the cross, so there is forgiveness for those who receive it. Therefore, number three, God has delayed wrath and immediate retribution for wickedness in this age of grace. Number four, he seeks to draw humanity to repentance by his kindness, not with wrath. Number five, there is an appointed time of wrath, but it is still future, the tribulation period. Number six, when that time comes, there will be no question as to the reason and the source of the calamities. And number seven, God simply does not slay the righteous with the wicked, as evidenced by the flood, Sodom and Gomorrah, and the rapture of the church. The answer is no. There wasn't a single evangelical leader interviewed on CNN or Fox or any other news network that gave a biblical answer. I am so disappointed. Our world deserves biblical answers today, don't they? Where do they turn? The church. When CNN has a question about the wrath of God in the end of days, they turn to the church. They call up the only pastors they know to call up and they ask these questions. Well, listen, CNN may never call you, but who is your co-worker going to turn to? Who is your cousin going to turn to? Who is your friend going to turn to? They're going to come to you for answers and we ought to have biblical ones for them. And having said those things about what happened down there not being the wrath of God, there remains one more possibility. God spoke to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, verse 3, and said to him concerning the nation of Israel, that God would bless those who bless Israel and curse those who curse Israel. A fundamental promise of the Old Testament concerning the nation that God would bring forth from Israel. God hath said he will bless those who bless Israel and he will curse those who curse Israel. 
With regards to Israel, it is a clear command in the scripture to the Gentile nations that they are not to participate in the dividing of Israel's land. They are not to participate in the dividing of the land or there will be consequences for that. Joel chapter three, verses one and two. For behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have shattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. God says that there will be a special judgment. When? At the beginning of the millennial kingdom. It says there in verse 1, when he restores the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, that's at the beginning of the millennial kingdom, that he will gather the nations who have participated in scattering the Jews and in dividing the land, and he will judge them there for those actions. There will be wrath. Judgment of the nations that have dealt wrongly with the nation of Israel. You can read for homework, Ezekiel 35 and 36 talks about the same thing. Now, there are those within Christianity who suggest that there is a connection between our dealings and our policy with and our forcing the hand of the government of Israel and the calamities that have come upon our nation. And there's no question that the timing was interesting. It was only a few days after the pullout from Gaza, effectively a move toward the dividing of the land of Israel. The pullout of Gaza was, of course, uh, mostly the work of George Bush, pressuring upon Ariel Sharon and his government. It was only a few days after America participated in by pushing for the Israeli pullout of Gaza that we were hit by Katrina. And there are those who draw a connection and say, look, it's uh, it's uncanny. It's not a mistake that this followed on the heel of that. And that they say that that, that this disaster is the chastening of the Lord upon our nation because of our dealings for Israel. Let me say very clearly, there is no doubt in my mind, I guarantee you today, it is absolutely sure that our nation will be judged for our policies toward Israel. There's no question about it. It's absolutely sure. This president has been the most unfriendly president toward Israel in the history of presidents. On the front, he seems very pro-Israel, but his policies are very anti-Israel. And George Bush is pushing for the establishment of a Palestinian state, the dividing of the land. The man will be judged for his participation in that. But according to this verse, that judgment is yet future. It says, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, then I will judge the nations for their dividing up and scattering of the people. It says that he'll do it in the valley of Jehoshaphat. There's not a valley of Jehoshaphat in Israel right now. It is a popular belief amongst Bible scholars and students of Bible prophecy that when Jesus sets his feet down on the Mount of Olives, according to the book of Zechariah, and it splits in two from east to west, and the geography surrounding Jerusalem is changed, that there will be a new valley, the valley of Jehoshaphat, and that it will be there that the nations will be judged for how they dealt with Israel. God will fulfill the promise. I will bless those who bless Israel, and I will curse those who curse Israel. But it's an open debate within Christianity, whether it is solely reserved for the time of the millennial kingdom, that judgment, 
or if God is meeting out retribution right now for our dealings with Israel. I will recommend to you for your study. I don't say I necessarily uh, agree with all of his conclusions, but White House correspondent Bill Koenig. His website is watch.org. He has a book called Eye to Eye. And in his book, he outlines how every major disaster in America over the last 50 years has been connected in timing to an anti-Israel policy upheld by our government. Fascinating book. Go read it. Come to your own conclusions. But go read it. We've got some CDs uh, of his back there today that you could look at. It's a possibility. We'll see. But as you look at our world today, like CNN and Fox News and the others, you begin to wonder. Katrina, Rita, and then the earthquake in Pakistan. I read yesterday that two and a half million people are homeless because of that earthquake. That's infathomable. Can't even get my little mind around that. Two and a half million people homeless because of that earthquake. We hear daily of wars and rumors of wars. We're living in a day when they are seeking to adopt a constitution, a democratic constitution in Iraq. And there's been an insurgent uprising. Uh, there are wars and rumors of wars. Israel, Iraq, and the Middle East. We are facing now the bird flu of all things. Sick chickens in Europe. I just read an article about New Zealand considering closing its borders because of the chicken flu. And anybody that came in would have to be in quarantine for a couple of weeks before they could enter the country. They are convening councils of all the nations in Europe to talk about the chicken flu. And it's no laughing matter. It is something that may be threatening in our day, but it is some sort of new sickness. And then I read an article this week on the Catholic Church's view of the Bible. That they officially say that you cannot believe everything in the Bible. They officially say that the Bible is incorrect in certain places on certain things. It is the Roman Catholic Church official view. You look at these things and it's hard not to say, wow, we're living in the last days. Matthew chapter 24, uh, Jesus' disciples said, when will the last days be? Look at verse 6, Matthew 24. Jesus responded and said, well, you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not frightened, for those things must take place, but that is not yet the end. Last century has been the bloodiest century in the history of the world. Wars of rumors and wars, wars and rumors of wars. We hear about them every single day in the news, don't we? Every single day. This is commonplace now. Look at verse 7. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. And you look at the news week, pestilences, the bird flu, the chicken flu, a very serious thing, and earthquakes in various places. I thought earthquakes just happened in uh, California. No, there was a huge one in Pakistan. Earthquakes in various places. In verse 8, says, but all these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. All these things are merely the beginning of birth pangs. They don't mean that the end is yet, but they're birth pangs. What are birth pangs? They're those contractions that a woman has, meaning something is coming. They are not that something. They are not it, but they are a sure sign that it is coming. These things are not it, but they are a sure sign that it, 
shouldn't say it, that's not you blasphemous, that Jesus Christ is coming. It does not say in the Bible that Jesus would cause these things to be taking place before his coming. That he would cause rumors and, uh, and wars and rumors of wars. That he would cause pestilence. That he would cause earthquakes and all these different things. It says that those will be the global conditions at the time of his coming for the church. And when we look around, it is hard to argue that these are not the global conditions of today. Birth pangs. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely. Turn to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. First Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. But the Spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. Men who forbid marriage and advocate abstaining from foods which God has created to be gratefully shared in by those who believe and know the truth says that one characteristic of the last days would be that people would be falling away from the faith. I have here the article from Times Online written by Ruth Gledhill about the Catholic Church no longer swears by the truth of the Bible. I have some quotes. I won't get to those yet. But the article starts out by saying this. The hierarchy of the Roman Catholic Church has published a teaching document instructing the faithful that some parts of the Bible are not actually true. The Catholic bishops of England, Wales, and Scotland are warning their five million worshipers, as well as any others drawn to the study of Scripture, that they should not expect total accuracy from the Bible. Goes on to say, we have this on PowerPoint. They say the church must offer the gospel in ways appropriate to changing times, intelligible and attractive to our contemporaries. Wait a minute. The word of God says that the gospel is an offense to those who are perishing. We're to make it attractive. We're to adapt it to changing times. May it never be goes on to say the Bible is true in passages relating to human salvation, they say, but continue. We should not expect total accuracy from the Bible in other secular matters. Goes against what is called the doctrine of inerrancy, which says basically that in everything that the Bible speaks about, it is 100 percent correct. Many today think, well, the Bible is in uh, is in contradiction with science. Are you sure about that? Is your faith in science today? Because listen to this. The Bible has always said that the earth was round. Isaiah 40, 22. Science used to say that the earth was flat. The Bible has said for thousands of years that it was round. Science finally discovered it was round. The Bible has always said in Jeremiah 33, 22, that there is an incalculable number of stars. Science used to say that there are 1,100 stars. The Bible says in Job 18, 19, and 20 that light moves. 
Science used to, say, used to say that light was fixed in place. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 1.6 that wind blows in cyclones. Science used to say that wind blows straight. I could go on and on and on and on and on and on. If the Bible is apparently in contradiction with science, who are you going to side with? Science says that evolution is truth even though it contradicts the second law of thermodynamics, which is a scientific law that all things go from order to chaos. They say that truth is everything went from chaos to order. According to scientific law, it is impossible. Now, when you have a scientific law and you come up with a scientific theory that contradicts the scientific law, shouldn't your theory be in question? And yet the Roman Catholic Church would say, well... The Bible can't be trusted in secular matters. It goes on to say, of the notorious anti-Jewish curse in Matthew 27, 25, his blood be upon us and our children, a passage used to justify centuries of anti-Semitism, the bishops say these and other words must never be used again as a pretext to treat Jewish people with contempt. That's right. Describing this passage as a dramatic exaggeration that's wrong. They've said of a passage that is in the Bible that it is a dramatic exaggeration. The Roman Catholic Church, as well as parts of the Protestant Church, have been guilty of anti-Semitism for hundreds of years. They're going to let their bad moves now cast dispersion upon the authority of Scripture, upon the inerrancy of Scripture. It's absolutely ridiculous. It goes on to say, as examples of passages not to be taken literally, the bishops cite the early chapters of Genesis, comparing them with early creation legends from other cultures, especially from the ancient East. The bishops say it is clear that the primary purpose of these chapters was to provide religious teaching and that they could not be described as historical writing. In other words, they reject the creation accounts. If you reject the creation accounts, then there is no need for the salvation of man. There is no need for the rest of Scripture. There is no need for any of this. Similarly, they refute the apocalyptic prophecies of Revelation, the last book of the Christian Bible, in which the writer describes the work of the risen Jesus, the death of the beast, and the wedding feast of, the, of Christ the Lamb. The bishops say such symbolic language must be respected for what it is and is not to be interpreted literally. We should not expect to discover in this book details about the end of the world, about how many will be saved and about when the end will come. In other words, the Bible has no answers for you. And you can't trust it. It goes on to say, the author quotes, they say people today are searching for what is worthwhile, what has real value, what can be trusted and what is really true. In other words, they're saying that the Bible is not worthwhile, that the Bible cannot be trusted, that the Bible is not really true. But we, the Roman Catholic Church, see that people are searching for this, so we're going to go ahead and tell them that you can't really find these things in the Bible. This is unbelievable. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely. The Spirit explicitly says in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons and forbidding marriage. 2 Timothy chapter 3, if you'll turn there, please. 2 Timothy chapter 3. It says in verse 1, But realize this, 
But in the last days, difficult times will come. For men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, brutal, haters of good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure, pleasure rather than lovers of God, holding to a form of religion or godliness, although they have denied its power, avoid such men as these. Are we living in the last days? Absolutely. It's a perfect description of humanity today. Perfect description of the moral temperature of our world today. What should we do about it? Second Timothy chapter four. Second Timothy chapter four. Verse one. Paul writes to Timothy and says, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing and his kingdom. Preach the word. What are we to do? Paul solemnly charges us here because of the last days. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Always be ready to give the true word of God to people. Reprove, rebuke and exhort with great patience and instruction. Not be tolerant, not overlook, not be relativistic, not sweep it under the carpet. The instruction for those of us living in the last days is reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desire. And they will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. But you, be sober in all things. Endure hardship, hurricanes, so on and so forth. And do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. But these things that you share with us today are horrible. What should we do? Fulfill your ministry. Preach the word in season and out of season. When you see error in your community, then you need to reprove, rebuke, and exhort. To be sober. Endure hardship. Jesus said, in this world you're going to have trouble. There's going to be tragedy. But do the work of an evangelist. Tell people the good news of Jesus Christ. Look at the testimony of Paul, verse 6. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I've kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Do you love the appearing of the Lord? Are you looking forward to his coming? How should we live in these last days? We ought to be biblically correct, speaking the truth in love, fulfilling our ministry, doing the work of an evangelist. And it says in 1 John chapter 3, those who have this hope in themselves, the hope of the coming of the Lord for the church, purify themselves even as he is pure. I'm going to just read by reading. I'm just going to end by reading Lamentations 3 to you. Take heart because it says in Lamentations 3.19, written by the prophet Jeremiah. He says, remember my affliction and my wandering, the wormwood and bitterness. Surely my soul remembers and is bowed down within me. This I recall to mind. Therefore, I have hope. The Lord's loving kindness indeed never ceases. 
For his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will have hope in him. The Lord is good to those who wait for him, to the person who seeks him. It is good that he waits silently for the salvation of the Lord. The Lord is good. We live in perilous times. We live in crazy times. We live in unbelievably exciting times. If you fulfill your ministry and remember that the Lord is good. Amen. Thank you, Lord, for this word today. I just pray that you take these words of yours, Lord, and stir them deep in our spirits. And we would respond rightly. We'd be called doers of the words. Lord, you're right in everything. And I just pray if there's any area that we're wrong, where we've strayed from the truth, you bring us into correction. You bring us into line with your precepts. And Lord, that you'd birth a fire in us now today as we worship you. You would birth a fire in us to be about your business in these last days. Holy Spirit, ignite us to be about your business in these last days. I want to just invite you guys to remember those last few verses we read that the Lord is good. The Lord is faithful. But then I'll ask you, are you faithful to the call that God has on your life? Each one has been given a special gift. Scripture says to use it, therefore, as stewards of the grace of God in these crazy days. We're to distribute the grace of God in this world. So as we begin to worship, I just want you to meditate on what God may be calling you to do. And then when we're done, go out these doors and do it to the glory of God.